Brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Loss helps us define our lives. By allowing our grief to matter, we discover our own strengths and embrace our authentic selves. Welcome to Good Grief with your host, Cheryl Jones. Get ready to be inspired, to create a deeper life, to make your time on Earth much more meaningful. Now, here is Cheryl Jones. Hello, I'm your host, Cheryl Jones, and I want to welcome you to Good Grief, where we talk each week about the transformations that can come from loss. Today, I'm welcoming Nora Casey, broadcaster and publishing entrepreneur. Nora Casey was formerly a dragon in the popular television series Dragon's Den in Ireland and is a well-known radio and television personality. The second edition of her book, Spark, How to Reignite Your Passion for Life and Become the Person You Always Dreamed of Being, was published by Penguin in 2017. And her TEDx talk, The Cure for Grief and Then the Courage to Leave, have been watched by thousands. Her digital learning platform, Planet Woman, seeks to empower women through workbooks, videos, podcasts, and animations. Much of her work can be viewed on her YouTube channel and at norakasey.com. Her vodcast, 10 Steps to Startup Success, is widely used to help budding entrepreneurs start their own businesses. Welcome, Nora. Thank you. I sound about 90 years old there. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's what happens when when we live the life that, that you describe in your book, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's the years of wisdom, I think, you know. <laughs> Perhaps. And it's also, um, I, I find, uh, you know, my life keeps leading me to different things that I I could not have predicted whatsoever, which is part of what we'll talk about today. So if you put it all together, it seems as if I've done a lot of things. But when people say, God, how do you do it all? I say, I don't do it all at once. <laughs> yeah. The, the worst thing I, I sometimes get described as is a serial entrepreneur. And I always think the word serial often comes before the kind of words that you don't really want to be described as. <laughs> For sure. But what they mean by that is that uh, I guess I perceive you as a person who, uh, you know, I heard once that Steve Jobs said, if I'm unhappy with what I'm doing for three days in a row, if I don't want to go do it for three days in a row, I have to do something different. Um, Exactly. Three days is a very short. (laughs) I'm sure he didn't mean like radical, but... Um, but that seems as if sort of your principle might be close to that, yes? Yeah, I'm writing a book on entrepreneurship at the moment, so I've spent a lot of time looking at those traits, you know, the kind of seven traits. And the one that I learned very early in my life was adaptability, which um, is something people often learn through failure. But for me, I guess I fell into nursing, um, which is extraordinary as I ended up in later life being a dragon, you know, so started as an angel. Um, and for, for American I'm, I'm, and maybe other places, let's define dragon. It's a it's a woman entrepreneur. It's Shark Tank. 
Yes, in, in, in the U.S., the same show by owned, owned by the same company, which is Sony, is called Shark Tank. Ah, a slightly different that will be familiar so, to many Americans, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, so people watch Shark Tank and they have the same kind of austere-looking investors sitting, waiting to see some probably hapless person come in trying to bid for their money. Um, they're called Dragon's Den in Canada and the UK and Ireland and in various parts of the world. So it's the same thing, you know, five, five stern-faced-looking investors glaring into the distance as somebody stutters their way through why they should part with their money. So it's, it's, it's not a natural kind of persona for me. I was always smiling and laughing and the producers would cut it all out and say, stop laughing, stop talking to them, you know. So, yeah, it, it, did, it did create a kind of a personality for me that wasn't entirely comfortable. So, And yet, I get, uh, you know, we'll get on to, to why we're sitting here talking in a minute, but I do get the impression that, um, all your life, you'd ha- you've had a fair amount of drive. You've had a certain um, uh, focus on accomplishment, uh, mm. a lot of energy, maybe. Does that yeah, I think fit I, your perception most, of yourself? Most people who I, I talk to in later life about, you know, how did you get to be where you are? For every one woman who gets to the top, there's another nine who don't. Um, it generally, you know, the, the story often starts in the home. And I always say I was raised by a feminist and my mother was pretty fantastic as well. So um, oh. although we were, we're very much a working class family, we grew up in a park, I think Yellowstone. So a big inner city park where my father was a ranger and my grandfather. And um, we weren't by any means wealthy. Eight of us lived in a three bed lodge. I went to a desh school in Ireland. That means it was publicly funded because it was for people from socially disadvantaged backgrounds. Um, I guess if you ask the younger Nora Casey, what do you want to be? I would never have said businesswoman because I'd never met one. I didn't even know what a businesswoman was. But I do know that my father and my mother both instilled in all of us the belief that we could do anything. I think when I left school, I went out into the world believing there was no chance that I couldn't achieve anything that I wanted to do with hard work and grit and determination, I could be anything I wanted to be. Um, now, life tends to knock some of that out of you, by the way, but um, but to start with, as I say, I, I went off to be a nurse. Maybe for different reasons, Cheryl, I think um, I was keen to escape the four girls in a bedroom in Ireland, and I was going to the banks of Loch Lomond in Scotland. Um, I really saw it as being an escape from the family home for a while with no serious intent to stay in nursing. But Mm. to be perfectly honest, most of my entrepreneurial skills were developed during my nursing days. I mean, I think people often say it's hard making decisions in business. There's nothing harder than being a nurse and having to uh, work in an environment where potentially your decisions are life or death and in any event have serious consequences. As a young person, I think I left... I learned a great deal about um, about life, about humanity, about how to communicate from holding somebody's hand who's um, facing chronic debilitating illness to sharing bad news to laughing with young people who might be feeling a bit down, um, walking into a room of people in beds, almost predicting what's going to happen next, you know, building on your intuition and your science all at the same time. Mm-hmm. But ultimately it wasn't for me and I think I had the courage to go back to the beginning after five years and start again, as I often describe as a, an oily rag on the newsroom floor, as a young rookie journalist um, studying again for two years post-grad and then after print I did um, television and radio. Um, I'm fast-forwarding because I am so old. 
I think you might be younger than I am, though. (laughs) Well, let's see, I I used to think there was no better job than being a writer. Like, I'd look at the editor and think, how sad is his job that he has to correct my work and how beautiful it is for me to be able to write it. And then I became news editor and I thought, how sad it is to be writing when I'm the one with the power and I can, you know, whip those words out and turn it all (laughs) into shape. And when I became editor, I just thought, you know, I was flying, that I had the ability to create all of the content of the magazine and then when I rose to editorial director and CEO well I really knew that I found my trajectory I just couldn't believe how wonderful it was to shape businesses to create to launch to merge to acquire now I was terrible at it by the way so all of the learning I had in journalism doesn't stand you at all when you want to be CEO of a publishing company so I went to a great management college in the I was in London at the time, um, Ashridge Management College, and I studied strategic management um, at night time, went off and did my MPhil and PhD. So I would describe my 20s as a period when I did nothing but work and learn, <laughs> while every other 20-year-old was off, you know, discovering the world, spending money on themselves, worrying about their beauty and their makeup. All I seemed to do was study at night time, study the weekends, do different shifts at different radio stations to make ends meet. Um, But the upshot was, I guess, I was running my first business before I was 30, just before I was 30. Um, And I really felt I'd found my groove. And um, I feel that that is important background for the thing that that ignites our conversation today, because that's the life of someone who's been able to affect your reality a great deal and um, maybe not always in a linear line, but to kind of follow uh, follow your aims and work hard to get there. And uh, then big loss comes into your life in the shape mm-hmm. of a very short illness uh, that your, your love of your life husband uh, had yep. that that killed him very quickly. I, I always am struck by that because I had 10 years to adjust uh, or assimilate the fact that my wife would die. And so I kind of, uh, my, my heart stops a little bit when I talk to someone who experienced a spouse loss quickly. Uh, I, I remember where I was at at five months and it was certainly different than where I was yeah. when she actually died. Um, yeah. So at the first, uh, did you immediately have thoughts that you could use some of those skills to cope with the loss of your husband, or was that kind of an alien concept right at the start? Um, very much an alien concept. I think the only skill I wanted was to crawl under the bed. Um, I, I guess... Just to quickly put it into context, I, I think you, Shirley, and I have spoken. I had a very bad first marriage and a very abusive husband, and then um, I think you get the worst ones, and then you get the best. So, <laughs> Richard was like me. Especially if you're so paying much. attention, eh? <laughs> yeah, he was an incredible man. Like, I mean, I, I, I still to this day wonder if all of the people in the universe, how did I ever manage to find the one person who was the other half of me? And he worked for the BBC for 20 years. When I started to own, run, and invest in businesses, we moved from London to Dublin, and he eventually came in and worked in the business with me. So um, apart from him regularly making jokes about sleeping with the boss, he was by far the nicer director in the business, so all of the staff loved him. If they wanted to get anything over on me, they would go to him, of course, first. So um, when, he, when he got sick, it was 
it was quite extraordinary. We were out actually partying with a friend of ours who runs a radio station and, and he'd had a glass of wine or two and I was ribbing him the next day saying that pain in your back is probably, you know, you had a glass of wine. But and anyway, ultimately, it wasn't. It was a tumour in his kidney and within a few weeks they found it in his spine, in his, um, in his liver. In fact, within, he was vibrant in his 40s, very, very, very vivacious and um, they decided to do radiotherapy on the tumour in his spine and they cracked his spinal cord. So within four weeks of diagnosis, he was in a wheelchair. So when I say it was catastrophic to us, um, it, it was hugely catastrophic. Every week when they were giving him the most toxic doses of chemotherapy, just more and more cancer would be found. So it was like this roller coaster of terror. Uh, didn't, didn't allow us to discuss an awful lot about his death. Um, in fact, I think part of the problem after he died was we learned to live in the moment. If ever my brain flew into the future thinking of what my life would be like without him, I wrestled it with like a will of iron back into the present to talk mm. about whether he wanted a coffee and how the scan was and would we have something to eat. And so when he died, I, I did feel I was just thrown off a cliff. And, I, I, you know, it's very hard not to use analogies. But for me, I wasn't, as I just described, in the slow lane of life. I had all of these businesses. I was at the heart of the business and then suddenly this big, huge rock just fell in front of me. And as much as, you know, of course I missed Richard in terms of he was the other half of me. I woke up with him every day. He was everything to me. And I'd just lost my sister before he got unwell. I'd lost my father, but nothing prepared me for losing Richard. And it was the lack of future that I really struggled with. Um, uh. Of course, on New Year's Eve, we'd have a glass of wine and we'd debate what we were going to do in the next chapter. And I had lost all of that future. And as time went on in those months in the immediate aftermath, you know, myself and Dara, my son was 12 and, you know, we got back to school and back to work and um, tried to get, you know, routine and rote into our lives. But instead of my head thinking of the future, which was just abject terror for me, it, you know, at the close of the day, I'd find my head going backwards. I was back in the moments that were lovely and beautiful and I was wishful and some of the moments weren't so nice to think about in the final moments of his life and... Um, I just, I was just static. I just, I, I just couldn't actually move on. I was just treading water. And by the way, eating everything I could get my hands on. And, you know, I wasn't good company. I, I didn't want company. And by the way, people are only so tolerant of sad people. <laughs> so they didn't really want my company. <laughs> Unless either. you have very special people who are, who yeah, are experienced. I guess. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I would say it took, you know, my mom, my mom's a counsellor and, you know, she kept saying, you need to go off and have a bit of time with Dara and, you know, stop running away from it. And I'd say at about six months, we went off to a place in the mountains in the forest and kind of a retreat on our own. And, you know, we were dreadful company for each other. We, it, it rained incessantly, as it often does in Ireland. And we sort of talked about the rain for about 12 hours every day as to what kind of rain it was and whether it would rain and stop rain in between raining. Um, sometimes when your mind doesn't want to confront something, it's not a great idea to add loads of space into your life where you have nothing else to distract you. Um, I certainly found it difficult um, to be in that kind of quiet solitude so soon after he died. I often talk about the fact that, you know, I, I'm geek. I'm a geek, a total geek. <laughs> I, yeah. I always delve into science when I have a problem. Anytime both my TED Talks are about emotional 
issues, but they deal with science. And I started reading books over and over again about grief and how I could get out of this grief. And it wasn't that I was trying to say goodbye to Richard in my mind. He's always very much present in my mind. It was just this apathy and, you know, sadness and desolation and endurance is the word I used to use all the time. I was just enduring life. And I, I had, you know, I'd taken sort of Googling. I, I'm not a great fan of the whole stages of grief. In fact, they made me feel quite guilty that I wasn't going through. I wasn't angry and I didn't uh-huh. that Richard died. And I, I, not to mention they're me. not and stages that you go through in order and then you're yeah. done. <laughs> it just doesn't yeah, resonate I, with it, me. <laughs> and one day, extraordinarily, I just put into the Google search engine, the cure for grief is, and up came this quote from a guy who you guys over there probably know better than me. Uh, his name is Albert Hubbard, I think. Um, he was kind of an anarchist and a writer, American, and he died actually over on our side of the water in the Lusitania when it was hit by a German submarine um, just off the south coast of Ireland around just before our war, 1915, around 1915. So he wrote this quote, which was, the cure for grief is motion. And I became quite obsessed with this idea that if you were going to cure grief, you had to move. And there I am, static and going backwards. So I started looking at anthropologists and what they said about human mind. And there's a man in Australia who I think his wife says, laughingly, I hope that I kind of am a bit of a stalker. His name is Thomas Suddendorf. He's an anthropologist. He spent his whole life looking at what makes us uniquely human, um, like almost kind of not a Darwinian theory, but a separate branch to our nearest neighbors, the chimps and the orangutans. Mm -hmm. And he had written a book called um, Find the Gap. And so I'd read that from cover to cover and um, and his belief, as it is the belief of many anthropologists, is there's only really two that separate us humans from the rest of uh, the animal kingdom. One is we have an insatiable need to swap stories and share experiences. Um, so needless to say, the great minds of my generation have not been spent curing cancer. It's been finding more unique and novel ways to swap stories and share experiences in the digital world. Yes. Uh, but the second one is our real superpower, which is our ability to mentally time travel. And I've written about that in the book, and I talk about it a lot, that we have this wonderful ability to go back in time to our earliest memory. We can even appreciate earlier than that through history, the Big Bang. But the real neat thing is we have the ability to ping our heads into the future and through free will determine a course of action. And human beings thrive on that. They thrive on the fact that they look to the future. And my boy is now, um, you know, a late teen and he's constantly talking about when I grow up and he's like the best every human being could be, you know. He's mm. learning separation and building relationships. His brain is on fire. His neurosynapses are going off all over the place. Um, as we get older, we stop looking to the future because we're like, I don't want to be frail and elderly like my grandparents and my parents. So sometimes it happens naturally anyway in our 40s and 50s that we start to become a bit more static and listen to the music we used to listen to. For me, I Physical energy easy. for one thing. And, and I don't yeah. want to cut this conversation off and it's time for a break. So let's come right back there when the, when the break is done. And listeners, you can find links to my website and social media at the Good Grief page at Voice America. You can also find a link to my novel, An Ocean Between Them, about a mother and daughter who estrange from each other but find their way back after the daughter is diagnosed with cancer. And to find Nora Casey, you can go to norakasey.com. Be back soon. (laughs) 
Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. Have you stopped to think seriously about hypnosis? Hypnosis can set you on your way to better health, can free you from anxiety, phobias, and so much more. Join host Inez Simpson for Hypnosis Everywhere. Inez Simpson and the Simpson Protocol. This show is for anyone from the experienced hypnotist practitioner to the merely curious. Inez Simpson offers tools and insights from the whole world of hypnosis with guests and open discussions. Hypnosis Everywhere, the Simpson Protocol, airs live every Wednesday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on Voice America Health & Wellness. What sets apart VoiceAmerica.tv from the other video content providers on the Internet? Choice and flexibility means that you can host your video content live or on demand on the main VoiceAmerica.tv channels through your own branded media player or your own private TV channel. We support multiple media formats, so all of your video content can be in one place. We offer a number of advertising and video packages. For more information, visit VoiceAmerica.tv. If you think you've seen online TV like this before, let us surprise you. Relationship issues? Anxious? Parenting challenges? No more. Learn how to live your best life. Tune into Straight Talk with top psychotherapist, relationship, and anxiety expert, Sandra Reich. In this program, you'll learn how to transform your challenges into effective solutions, whether it's relationships, parenting, anxiety issues, or other life traps that you struggle with. Sandra will show you how to change them and how to live the life of your dreams. Listen every Thursday afternoon at 6 p.m. Eastern Time and 3 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1 866 472 5792. That's 1 866 472 5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back. This is your host, Cheryl Jones, and I've been talking with Nora Casey. Her her TED Talk, The Cure for Grief, was widely viewed, and she wrote a book called Spark uh, about how to uh, go forward towards the life that you want to be living. And before the break, Nora, um, we were talking about uh, what ended up helping you after your husband died. And I don't think you used the word movement exactly, but I'll tell people who are really worried about the intense feelings of grief, people that come into my therapy office, I'll say, I don't worry unless things aren't moving. Um, So that sort of intersects with what you were saying. Uh, But would you like to say more about about that revelation? I think... I think, all, you know, if I piled up next to me all the miles of research I read, it's actually, it's very, as you know, Cheryl, the, the, the research into grief is quite scant. It's a new science. But 
But I was really taken with the idea that if I, you know, the fact that I'd lost my future with Richard, I didn't have one and I needed to reinvent a new one was very much part of my thinking. And, you know, by the way, there was nothing that was getting me off that couch at the time. And anybody who suggested going for a walk would get a a stern word or two from me. So (laughs) I really worried about the fact that, you know, just to use a a dreadful that I'm using a car analogy tonight, but it just struck me, I think, because I just drove home. But um, it was like there was no ignition in the engine. I knew I was in the car and I needed to set us up now, but I had no ignition in the engine. And it happened by chance. So I've often said afterwards that, you know, when people feel that that intensity of grief, that, that pain, that I felt at that time, you know, you'd be better off getting up and throwing yourself out of a plane and parachuting because uh. what really helped me was, was doing something that was abject terror to me. It was, it was by default finding this part of my brain that I could energize, even if the other part was flatlining. So I guess I'm not going to go into too geeky a territory, but, you know, it does go down to dopamine. And, you know, if you if you see that as a neurotransmitter that actually pushes you forward, you know, adrenaline holds you back, it's flight or fight. But dopamine is what really gets us up in the morning, gets us moving. If you take the blood of explorers, they've got more dopamine, big risk takers in business. When you lose a loved one, your dopamine goes through the floor because they were giving you all the hugs and patients. Um, so it's like going on hard drugs, basically, so that you're sitting around, you know, with no interest in life. It's a kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy. You can't get dopamine through the blood-brain barrier, despite what people will say on the internet. The only way you can get it is actually going out there and doing something that really terrifies you. For me, when I was walking in the countryside with Dara, I got a call to say, would I fill in for a big current affairs presenter on TV? Half mad with grief, I said, of course I will. Ended up driving up to that TV station and, and I, I had that moment of absolute kind of panic thinking, what are you thinking of? I could hardly string a sentence together at the time. Mm, I yes. couldn't have a conversation with anybody because I was so, you know, in my brain, I was so involved in the, in the hurt and the, the pain that I was going through. And here I was presenting a fast-moving two-hour current affairs show and I, I threw up the whole afternoon. I was supposed to be doing my research. It was those moments when you're reading the same line over and over again and although I had done it in my past, it's not like riding a bike, you know, you don't, it doesn't just come back to you. So there I'm in the hot seat with all these politicians and it was on economics and it was on Europe and um, I could see this red rash, you know, feel it anyway, going up my chest into my neck, <laughs> lump in my throat, you know, the, the producer was prattling on in my ear, distracting me. The autocue was like a blur, but somehow when the music started and we got into the program, before I knew it, the ground, the the floor manager was kind of saying 60 seconds to end. And I phoned my mother on the way home and I couldn't stop talking. I was saying, and did you hear what such and such a politician said and what he said? And she said, oh my goodness, Nora, do you realize, you know, I haven't had a conversation with you for six months that didn't involve you having long silences and you now cannot stop talking. And it was that moment of thinking, my brain is jammed with so much stuff, which has nothing to do with grief. And although the other part of my brain and my personal life might be a disaster, I can get this wonderful feeling of life from something different. And I went back the next night and presented it. And, you know, the rest is kind of history. I went on to present um, a current affairs program at 
getting up at 4 a.m. If I said to you, get up at 4 a.m. for a week next week, I did it for a year and a half. And <laughs> That's a miracle in and of itself. <laughs> <laughs> I still can't get out of getting up at 4 a.m. because you just get, you're, I was broadcasting from 7 till 10 and we started at 5.15. So I had to kind of get everything ready for Dara and somebody came in to get him to school and then I was with him when he came home in the afternoon. But I, I also asked my brother to be CEO of my businesses. I still kept them, but he, he was CEO of all the investments in the businesses and I was doing a television show on the Friday which is more like an afternoon woman's show I ditched Dragon's Den and hosted my own show called The Takeover where I went into businesses and kicked out the boss and took over with the staff so the comedians in Ireland were saying there's loads of jobs it's just that Nora Casey has them all <laughs> and somehow or other I was writing my book as well so I, when I say I did my media miles over the course of three years I did but it was great for me Loads of people had me on their shows and they were saying, you're running away, you've faced up to it. And yeah, I'd say that was true. I didn't want to think about Richard too much. I wanted to just fill my head with stuff that I could talk about with everybody. I was fired up with full throttle, ready for everything in life. I, you know, I really did feel energized by this whole new chapter, which I didn't want. I didn't ask for it, but it opened up something that was incredible for me in terms of my brain and my intellect and when I look back on my boardroom days I think maybe I was intellectually a little bit flabby I got to the point where I was a bit of the queen of the the room and you know now I was on my own two feet and having to stand up for myself and I loved it well there was when I was reading that part of your book it struck me as as uh familiar and a little paradoxical I I certainly didn't go uh as extremely uh as you did into motion but I do recall that a thought I had was that nothing could nothing could convince me it was more frightening now than what I had already been through uh, after my wife died, and 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 I've retained that. If I get anxious or scared about something, I'm thinking, well, yeah, that's I'm having that feeling, but really, it's nothing compared to. Yeah, uh, and. It, it seems to me you were you were a, a planner before that, and at that point, you you just grabbed at the impulse. Okay, I'll try it, even though it yeah. was terrifying. And I'm wondering if oh, that wasn't a little bit connected with grief. That maybe. you know, what have you got I, I, to lose? <laughs> yeah, I, I know. I said yes because I was half mad with grief. My mother was so mad at me. She said, "You." supposed to be down there walking in the forest and now you've just decided to do this thing and she wasn't mad afterwards because she was so grateful but it's not that you know were there days when I was destroyed with grief and you know cried for hours of course there were and my boy went through some terrible times so it wasn't that this period of my life was without the grief it was absolutely there always and it always still is there um, but it's just that I had this other half to my life that I suppose was given me a reason to get up in the morning and to feel like I was making a contribution. I had a moral imperative, which didn't come immediately. And it was only because people kept asking me to talk about it. And I suppose, you know, I was a public figure before that. And I did a lot of work for the hospice movement. My husband died in the hospice. And I think um, all the things we were terrified about him and his illness, his death was the one that terrified me the most, but it was the most beautiful death. 
seems an odd thing to say, but it was. It was beautiful. No, I, I understand was next that. To him holding his hand. There was a nurse on the other side of him, and he passed away very peacefully in a hospice. So I kind of became obsessed with the idea that everybody deserved to die with dignity. I did a television documentary on it, and I became a bit of an ambassador on the current affairs program. So people often said to me, you know, uh, uh, you know, where are you finding all this energy? You know, what? And I, I couldn't describe it at the time, except it struck me one day that one of the things that was that had a huge impact on me, Sharon, maybe you too, is that Richard was taken so soon. Like, he never got to fulfill his potential in life. And I was spending a lot of time in hospices, and I began to think of all the people who were in those hospices, or people through ability and um, disability, and through mental and physical illnesses, and, you know, women who wake up in Sierra Leone and don't worry about whether their exams, uh, their son passed their exams as I was, they were worried about, you know, clean water and food. And if there was a moral imperative to me getting up and living life to the full, that was it. But, you know, how dare I almost sit languishing on my couch, you know, in grief, when Richard was taken before he could do what he all he wanted to do in his next chapter, I remember him saying that to me that the, the most you know what he felt most desolate about in, in dying was that he wouldn't live his final chapter, that he wouldn't find the end to the story. And uh, so the the moral imperative wasn't there to begin with. I'd love to say I had that, but it, it, it did come in time. The more I thought about it, the more I thought, you know. Now, in a way, it had a slightly detrimental effect on me because I did feel that if I didn't work all the hours that I had, that somehow time would run out in the middle of the night and I wouldn't have achieved everything and um, maybe facing mortality. And I I still look back on that and say, why did that not happen when my dad died? He died in his sleep. Um, No good way to die, Cheryl, as as we've talked about. Uh, My sister died in very debilitating circumstances. None of those had the impact that the loss of Richard had on me. and I, I really was, there are times when I look back on that period and I wonder about my sanity, and I don't mean that in a flippant way. I made some really good choices in my life and I made some really bad choices in my life. Well, it's interesting because, you know, you're kind of, in, in a sense, implying, I'm not saying that you're saying this, but there's a little implication, movement's the, the ticket, right? Uh, But there is that period right after a death where that's just that it's more moving through feelings in my experience than it is moving towards anything. And I wonder whether, you know, it's possible that going off to the country with your son made some space, (laughs) you know, that was actually useful. I can imagine that. I don't know what your perspective is. But the fact is... As soon as you could move, you did. That's yes, how, that's how it appears to me. It's funny that you say that because I think, well, until you just said that, I've always sort of denied that that period of walking through the countryside helped me because I found it excruciatingly awful. What, <laughs> the reason I called my book Spark was the spark moment for me was doing that television show where, you know, you have to remember, like, now I seamlessly host television shows, but at the time, I it had been years before I had, you know, worked in the BBC or, or hosted anything or read an autocue. Fine, I was the other side of the table being interviewed, but not hosting. And I also was totally incoherent. I mean, I could not have a conversation with anybody. I had that widow's Tourette thing going on all the time. The postman would arrive and give me envelopes with Richard's name on it, and I'd blurt out, you know, he's dead. 
you know, and yes. get into a taxi. So I said, yeah. well, it might be a nice day. My, my husband died two months ago. Like, I was like, it just had to proclaim it. And then, of course, every conversation died. You know, if you, if you throw that in at the beginning of any conversation, nobody knows what to say. And there I was about to go into, now, this was the Nice Treaty. I, I, I'm not even going to, to go into the detail, but, you know, the level of intensity of the discussion we were about to have um, was huge. There was miles and miles of, of research that I had to go through to do it, and none of it staying in my brain. So under normal circumstances, maybe it wouldn't have been as terrifying, but it was... And, and you know, I people knew me, and I'm sitting in a studio about to really fall on my face and make a show of myself in front of people. That's, that's I suppose, was the biggest terror. No, I didn't. <laughs> so, yeah, I didn't, but that's I learned the, something. That's the that shocking <laughs> thing that happens, isn't it? I, it sparked. I, I do remember, I, I went back to work about a month after my wife died, and I need, I had to for financial reasons, and I also kind of wanted to because I, I was so formless in a way, but I thought it would be very hard, and then uh, the day before I went back to work, uh, someone called me who'd lost her partner a year before. And so I started working with her immediately when I went back to work and about grief. Uh, and I found it so energizing. That period in my work was so alive. I was so, so right there. And then I'd go yeah. out of work and, and you know, feel everything I was feeling about my loss again. But uh, I can see that that did, looking back, I can see that that did facilitate, that both could happen at once, did help facilitate my grief. Yeah. And I'm, I'm I, wondering I, I'm if that's something you're also talking about. And so for me, I went back after three days. I know that's really hard to imagine. I had an awful lot of people depending on me. I had been absent from the business. So Richard was the director of the business and I was the CEO. Both of us fell off that business for, you know, the, the five months of his illness. And, and I wanted structure in Dara's life. It was incredibly important to me to see if we got into a routine, could we get through these terrible, awful weeks after he died? In fact, I, I, was, I remember speaking on a conference platform with my fellow dragons about two weeks after he died. And when I stood up to speak, they gave me a standing ovation. And I remember looking out at the audience thinking, what are they standing up clapping for? I mean, I had no concept of how crazy it was that I was back working <laughs> and standing up and speaking. I'd, you know, at the time, I just thought, well, what else was I going to do? But the opposite of you, I, I was going into a business where my staff were grief-stricken. They loved him, loved him, loved him. So I was in a building with people who were bereaved, the whole energy of a publishing business is the CEO. You know, and I was very much the kind of person who walked onto a floor and talked to everybody all at once, sat on the side of the desk, what are you doing, where are you going? You know, public brainstorming. I mean, you knew I was in the building. And, uh, and then I found myself in meetings where people would be looking to me to energize them. I had, at the time, 15 investments across um, Asia and the UK, the US and Ireland. And those startups, they wanted my time and my energy. They, as much as they want your money, they also need your expertise. I had no energy for myself. And I didn't want to be at the vortex of everybody else's energy field. So I hated being back at work. It was mm. one of the reasons why I really did want to escape was I, I would go into the, the company and I would close the door in my office. Like something that you should never do, by the way, as a boss. 
I didn't want to see anyone. I didn't want to talk to anyone. And on my computer, there were just threads of Richard sending me emails. Everything I picked up was him, his voice. His office was sitting right next to mine with all of his stuff still in it. You know, so I was going home at night, getting into a bed with his, literally I charged his phone for a year after he died. His watch, everything was right next to me in the locker. Your bed is supposed to be a place where you can, you know, escape the world and relax. And yet all I could remember was him, you know, dying in that bed. And so my life was not good. The six months after he died, those six months were were just dreadful. So one thing, we're about to ready for another break, but here's what I uh, really captures me. The idea that we can evaluate what is not working and make different choices and that that is a lifelong possibility. Uh, because you go into in your book a lot that we stop thinking that way, but that that's actually very crucial to remaining vitality. Uh, mm-hmm. Of course, I I started doing this show at 60. I published a novel last year at 64. So this is a very, uh, um, it has impact on me, that idea mm-hmm. of continuing to do the new thing. And I, I really want to talk about that more with you when we come back from break. Great. And listeners... Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Ready to transform your health and your world? Join host Melissa Alexander for Insight Living with Vitality. Melissa and her guests go behind the scenes on what it takes for practitioners and clients to transform themselves and others. She provides insight to medical procedural breakthroughs, available product resources, and explains lifestyle choices designed to improve and expand your vitality. It's time to get rid of that baggage, remove those blockages, and prevent buildup from hindering your progress in life. Tune in every Monday at 10 a.m. Eastern Time, 7 a.m. Pacific time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Healthcare has been a major part of news stories today with one thing that has been consistent, inconsistency. Both healthcare providers and patients have to work around and get used to a constantly changing set of rules and issues. Nurses have historically been left out of this decision making. Listen to Once a Nurse, Always a Nurse, exploring the world of nursing with host Leanne Meyer. Health professionals, we invite you to share your ideas and experiences while listening to experts in various areas of nursing. Listen Mondays at 1 p.m. Eastern. 10 a.m. Pacific on Voice America Health and Wellness. Explore the power of natural healing with Howard Strauss. Join us each week for an informative program that will help you learn effective healing methods using natural remedies. Howard's guests include top researchers, authors, and experts who will share their views on a variety of natural products and healing methods that really work. Tune in to The Power of Natural Healing with Howard Strauss, Mondays at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network wherever you go. In addition to listening live, you can check out information about your favorite talk show hosts, discover new talk show personalities, add shows to your list of favorites, and listen to all of our show archives on demand. All from your iOS, Amazon Kindle, or Android device. Download it from the Apple App Store, Amazon, or Google Play, and get ready to tune in. 
the Voice America mobile app, powered by Aircast. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1 866 472 5792. That's 1 866 472 5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back to Good Grief. I'm here with Nora Casey, the author of Spark and uh, the presenter of two TED Talks on different losses in her life and how she uh, addressed those or or came through um, came through them, I guess. Uh, and before the break, Nora, we were we, I was uh, mentioning that I resonated with the idea in your book that in order to have kind of a uh, vital life for as long as possible until the body uh, decides not to cooperate with that, I guess, uh, takes doing new things and taking new challenges. And I'm a little bit of a, of a backwards person. I, I had a very, very small career in my little office until my 60s. And then I started doing much more public work and, you know, uh, yeah. I, I, I sort of am on the opposite trajectory of the one you outlined in your book, where my, my career vitality has started very late in life, really. I mean, not that I, I loved my work, but it was, it was uh, I kept it kind of small. Um, so, go ahead. I think that's so true. I, I, I now find myself lecturing, you know, I did the start, the, the Financial Brokers of Ireland's conference last Thursday and then spoke in London on Friday to a group of city types. So I'm often in front of, um, of groups of people of a certain age, let's put it that way. And um, my own belief when Richard died is, is there was this one question niggling me all the time, and it was, are you done yet? I just kept saying it to myself, are you done yet? You know, nature and nurture growing up, um, your parents, all the ambition they had for you, all your own ambition. Is that all done? You know, are you going to end up in your dying bed saying, you know, you turned a company around? Are you, are you finished with everything you wanted to do in life? And I just knew in my heart I wasn't. So, so many people I sit in front of, they just end up in their 40s and 50s, getting up, going to work, coming home. They get stuck in a bit of a rut and they go to the same restaurant, smaller circle of friends. They don't like to debate. In fact, most of them say, don't sit with him. He'll have a row at himself. Um, They like to sort of stay in that dawdling slow lane. As I say, often looking backwards to, you know, what their life used to be like and things that were good and were fun. Um... And then I'm in front of them saying, come on, guys, you have a life expectancy of 82, unlike places like Sierra Leone, and and the States is not too far behind where the UK and Ireland is. So if you get to 60, you get four bonus years. You have a lot of life still to lead. There's going to be no magic portal that happens when you're 65 that takes you from active member of society to frail, vulnerable elderly. Because if you think that, you're almost going to fulfill that prophecy yourself. Because even though life expectancy is 82 to 86, our frail elderly expectancy is somewhere in the mid-70s. And that's because we almost by default allow it to happen by not thinking of a future. We're so terrified of thinking of the future, we don't think about it. So this 
huge cataclysmic event in my life, which is Richard's passing, gave me an opportunity to say, you have to find a future. Are you done yet? Is that everything you wanted to do? And I knew it wasn't. I knew that I wanted to do other things in my life. It, it was probably a big swerve and a curveball, but it nudged me into a different lane. And I'm so glad it did in one way because I'm doing something I never would have thought of doing before. Um, a lot of people don't get that nudge. And, and I'm always happy if somebody says, look, you're a crazy woman. You work all the hours. You have no work-life balance. I'm happy doing my little job. Thanks very much. So if it's a conscious decision to stay doing the same thing over and over in your life, that's fine. But, but for so many people, it's not a conscious decision. They mm. wake up at 60 and think, oh, my goodness, my life is over. What happened? What happened? Or worse, <laughs> yes. Or worse, they live vicariously through their children. You know, I'll often say to my colleagues, you know, how are you? And they'll say, well, John did great in his exams, and thank God Mary's finished the degree. And I'm like, I wasn't asking about your children. I was <laughs> asking about you. How are you? You know, what are you doing with your life? I, my mother, who hopefully is not listening to this because she will kill me for saying this, but she's way past life expectancy. And she's an incredible woman. She does Pilates. She does mindful yoga because we live in the park, the Phoenix Park. She goes for her little Il Camino, as she calls it every day. If I said to her, do you want to go to London shopping? She'd say, I'll have my bags packed first thing in the morning, Nora, pick me up. So for me, as much as I talk about a future and a sat-nav, um, I think one of the things that's so important and why your show is so important is it's, it's all very well saying this is where I want to be in the future. But, but if you, your mind is a very unreliable source for getting you there because it's never been there before. It only knows what you've done up to that point in your life. So if you want to know how to get somewhere you've never been to before, you're better off asking somebody who's there already. And so for two big pivotal moments in my life. One, when, when Richard died, my mom had been through the death of my father. And as she says, there's things that she never wanted a mother to pass on to their daughter, but I'm so glad she did. Mm. Um, and the second is, I see how she lives her life. You know, in her 60s and 70s, she was studying for her counseling diploma. She went off and studied philosophy. She went and learned French. Um, she studied for her computer language certificate at 70, the oldest person in Ireland. And she's not done, she's always there. She sits now, you know, with her iPad and I'd be going in talking to startup entrepreneurs. They say, well, I don't know how to use Twitter. And I said, my mother's on Twitter and Instagram. <laughs> She's in her age. <laughs> I think you could learn how to do it, you know? Yes, yes, yes. Well, you know, it's so interesting. It, cause, it caused me, uh, reading the book caused me to think about uh, my colleagues, uh, you know, because I, I'm in one of the few careers that you can do until you're very old. I have a friend who just retired at 90. And she didn't retire because she didn't love the work anymore. It was because she wanted to spend more time with her boyfriend. Um, I love that. Who she met <laughs> at like 86, right? And um, I, I realized that in my group of friends, uh, I'm in a group where I'm the youngest at 65. Uh, some people have died, but there's been... Uh, an appreciable lack of daughteringness or um, uh, intense Alzheimer's or, you know, because mm. this particular type of work you can keep doing and it's very challenging to the brain because people are not predictable. They're, they're different every day. Uh, yeah. and, and figuring out how to talk to a person in whatever state they're in is a brain challenge. So exactly. I was thinking about that when I was reading your your book that some of that automatically comes with my career. Very good to realize that. 
And also, the, so I suppose the, the other person, like I am a total geek and I follow people around the world that I admire. And there's a man in Tokyo University called Hiro Murata. He's the world's biggest uh, expert on smart aging because Japan was 10 years um, ahead of the rest of us. And, and he does, like, you can watch some of his talks online, but, you know, he once had a woman who was um, bedridden for, I think, two years and through brain training alone got her up out of the bed. No pharmaceutical, no technology intervention. So his belief is, like, you're better off having a rat with somebody um, when they grow older rather than having that sort of very bland conversation we often have with elderly people. How are you and what's the weather like? The worst thing you can do to somebody who's developing dementia is put them in front of a television and that's what we tend to do in nursing homes. So even reading aloud is better than than watching TV. Um, In in my mind, I think that the more you communicate with people and, and communicate deeply, like you and I are having a quite deep conversation, uh, the better it is, your brain, this is really good training for your brain to talk. And, and the reason I mention the fact that as we get older, we sometimes have a smaller circle of friends. Those friends tend to be ones that don't challenge us. Sometimes we choose friends that we get on with so well, we nearly know what they're going to say before they say it. So the conversation is not like my boy Dara and he's having with his friends. They're rowing all the time about everything from Trump to Duarte to Brexit. They have fights from morning to night, and it's all great for their brains. It helps them keep them healthy. Um, and we just don't do that. I mean, Hiro Murata did this great piece of research. I'll tell you very quickly. It was called The Leaf Project, which you can read about. In the remoter parts of um, Japan, where people were very elderly and the young people had left, um, they wanted to keep them fit, so they made them all part of a company. And the company was to gather leaves. In Japan, these prized leaves are sold in restaurants. And it was great for all of the people in that village. They all got out and walked every day. There was a competitiveness because the more leaves you found as you foraged, the more money you got. Uh, you could do it and talk to people. Um, it also made them feel like they were out in the fresh air. In that village, which the average age was something like 82, there's only one person who has uh, nursing care. So it's a great example of how you can energize villages that are in remote parts in Ireland, in the U.S., in everywhere, and to keep people as active as possible for longer, rather than thinking the inevitability is that you'll all end up in, a, in residential care or in social care or in a nursing home. It doesn't have to be that way. But you do have to start in your 50s. You, ha- you have to consciously start thinking about keeping your brain healthy. And I know having hit 65, I've been extremely healthy till now and I have more aches and pains. So keeping physically moving is is more of a challenge than it has ever been. Uh, oh, yeah. to me Funny. so uh, <laughs> I think I think there's that too because uh, you know the blood needs to be moving I, around huh? <laughs> I have this crazy need to do things that terrorize me and I think it goes back to that kind of spark that I felt when I did that terrifying television program so you know I've done whitewater rafting I just zip lined in Cambodia the highest in the toes and I am terrified of heights I'm still having flashbacks to stepping off that platform but I did it and I've also learned how to fly a plane because I hated flying planes and I went off to Africa and I trekked rhinos and so if ever you see me and I have to climb mountains I broke my kneecap climbing the highest mountain in England and Ireland oh I'm doing Kilimanjaro <laughs> in August so I you know people around me who know me are just exhausted listening to me but it actually nearly kills me physically no, like I, I am uh, a wreck my, my <laughs> wife and I, I I remarried and my wife and I decided when we She's a year ahead of me when I guess she turned 60. We decided that every year 
at our birthday, we would do something we'd never done before. Uh, we did zip lining and river rafting. And, um, it's kind of fallen off the last two years, but I'm sure we'll get back to it. Uh, so I resonate with what you're saying, that you have to keep um, acting younger. Uh, it, you can't just say age is not is just a number because it isn't just a number uh you know there are some real yep. things but you can feel younger so i appreciate you in your brain you, like i mean i have to i will admit that if i don't you know i'm never sure when i exercise a lot i have aches and pains when i don't exercise I have aches and pains. <laughs> so you may and, as well exercise I, is that the bottom line <laughs> And I'm an ambassador for the Heart Foundation and things like that, so I have to, you know, myself, if I go out telling people you have to do 20 minutes of cardiac work, I have to do it myself. Um, so I, I think the one thing I've learned a lot in the last while is, you know, I'll be honest, I was not a great fan of mindfulness. I used to knock it back all the time saying I couldn't possibly wrestle my brain into the present. It's constantly sparking off and all cylinders. <laughs> But, but it's okay if year, we're going to have to stop, Nora, unfortunately, to, I, no, we're going to have to stop because we've run out of time. But, you know, for me, <laughs> mindfulness is just whatever's happening, I'm looking at it. <laughs> so maybe we'll have a conversation about that someday. Thanks so much for being with me. Thanks and next week, me. listeners, I'll have Annie Mattingly. The suicide of her daughter and the subsequent communication that Annie was convinced came from her daughter led her to research and become a firm believer in after-death communication. We'll be talking about her book, The After-Death Chronicles. This has been Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. I look forward to being with you again next week for another meaningful conversation. Thank you so much for joining us for Good Grief. Please come back next Wednesday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific Time for another edition featuring your host, Cheryl Jones, on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Have a meaningful week. Abre mi corazón.